Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and this week I'm excited to bring you an interview with Kai, who's a wildland firefighter, or has recently become a wildland firefighter, about what's involved with fire, uh, about what's involved with protecting the space where you and your friends all live, and about just being prepared for fire and what's involved in fighting it. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts, and here's a jingle from another podcast. The Final Straw is a weekly anarchist radio show. It's fucking awesome, and you're never going to hear me say fucking awesome on our show, because we're FCC regulated. There's a a black part of my heart that that just flutters when you you talk like that. Uh, Talk than more yelling. It's a weird sort of like nice thing in a way, but also can get kind of crushing at times. The final straw radio dot So I'd like to welcome to the show uh, Kai and Kai, if you want to introduce yourself with your name, your pronouns, maybe any political or organizational affiliations you'd like to shout out that might be relevant, and also, I guess, what you've been doing for work work recently. Yeah, so my name is Kai. I use they, them pronouns. Um, I'm an anarchist, and I've been an anarchist my entire adult life. Um, I have been kind of moonlighting as a wildland firefighter for the last couple of weeks. Uh, but for my full-time job, I work in tech. Okay. So we're going to talk to you today about, and by we, I mean me, I'm going to talk to you today um, because of your work with uh, firefighting, wilderness firefighting. Um, I guess mostly I want to talk about kind of some of the practical stuff, but I also want to talk about like how to prepare for this kind of thing. But I also guess I, I kind of want to start by sort of acknowledging uh, that there's, you know, all these rumors of, of Antifa starting fires. And I guess one of the reasons I want to have you talk today is to talk about an anarchist who's out there fighting fires. Yeah. So I um, took off to the woods to do some firefighting and was pretty much offline for a couple weeks. Um, and then... Uh, right as I got off of my assignment, um, got told that there was a fire that was threatening my own house. So I booked it to my house to try to do whatever prep I could do. And then once I was up here, I started seeing all these rumors of, oh, it's, you know, anti-fascists starting these fires. Um, and I live in Southern Oregon, so there's very much like a right wing flavor to the discourse here. Um, I heard about a roadblock up by Portland where people were, you know, trying to keep that radical element out of the rest of Oregon so that they could keep these fires from being lit. And I think that hit me really hard because right now in my social circles, which are full of people who are pretty radical, people are doing so much work to support each other through these wildfires. You know, people are Um, offering housing to displaced people and you know people who are herbalists are doing clinics and sharing herbs to help with smoke inhalation which is really really bad in our area Um, literally off the charts air quality Um, 
you know, all these radical people are really doing everything that they can to help the communities around them. And all of us are being um, really emotionally affected seeing this much harm happen in the world. And then to have these rumors go out like, oh, these people are starting the fires when very clearly it's, you know, climate change and government policy and everything else that has kind of put us in this place. I think it was really infuriating. Like I'm not a person who gets angry um, very often, but yeah, it was pretty overwhelmingly upset to hear that that was um, what was getting spread around. So I guess one of the things I kind of want to ask about, I'm out East and it's literally raining right now, not to brag, but <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing about, I, I believe the roadblocks have even specifically been targeting and maybe I'm, I'm wrong and maybe I'm, I'm trying not to spread rumors, but we're targeting people providing mutual aid because, you know, obviously that's, I feel like the two things that at least U.S. anarchists focus on is militant confrontations in the streets and building alternative infrastructure and specifically mutual aid and specifically mutual aid around disaster response has been always our strong suit. And I didn't realize at first that the roadblocks were actually roadblocks preventing people from coming into the area where the fires were. And so it was, they were set to screen basically in this case, mutual aid groups from, from going in. I don't know. I, do you have more information about um, what mutual aid is looking like out there? And obviously by the time this goes up a couple of days from now, maybe everything will have changed. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest. I've been in a little bit of a crisis mode because there's a hundred percent uncontained, very large wildfire less than 10 miles from my house. And I've been <laughs> focused on like local politics and um, the roadblocks and stuff that I've heard about are in the more Northern part of the state, which is a couple hundred miles away. Okay. Um, and down here we, there's definitely like the chatter online about, um, you know, who started, in the fires everybody's really up in arms someone needs to be investigating this why haven't there been any arrests made um and you know it's these kinds of people starting the fires but i haven't seen anyone um taking kind of more direct action about that in our community um what i have seen is a lot of people who live in this area organizing locally to work with um each other to try and get aid out so in southern oregon we already have um networks and signal groups and stuff set up to try to share resources because of the pandemic. So a lot of people have been kind of switching those over from a more pandemic oriented response, like um, financial support because of job loss and stuff into a uh, fire response. Um, so those networks had already been starting to be created because 2020 is a shit show. <laughs> um, and now we're using them for fire stuff here. Um, that makes sense. So a lot of the stuff that I've seen is around housing, around making sure that um, people have food. There's a lot of farms in the area, and some of them are kind of offering up those resources and making sure that people have places to evacuate their animals to, because a lot of people here have um, both a lot of pets and a lot of um, livestock and chickens and goats and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine out west earlier this morning, and they were talking about how... Now they have a third use for their res their respirator. You know, it's already useful for COVID, yeah. and then it was useful for the government that likes to shoot toxic chemicals at us. And now they're using it for smoke inhalation. Just to you know, obviously, stay inside looks very different to different people. And you know, people right. who live in like more off grid, for example, can't always be fully inside. 
Um, so the two things that I want to talk to you about, I, I want to talk to you about both your work, uh, about what's involved in being a wilderness firefighter, but also maybe about what you are doing right now to prepare your house and like, yeah, so I, I guess those are the two things, the two sort of practical questions I'd like to ask you about. And I don't know which order makes the most sense to you to talk about them. Yeah. Um, the order that makes the most sense for me is to talk about the house stuff first, because that's how I ended up doing wildland firefighting. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, had lived really as a kid, and um, that property burned when I was a teenager. Um, so I have always been very aware of forest fires um, and the dangers they can cause. Um, but in California, especially, there's a lot of kind of relearning about using prescribed fire, um, which is something that indigenous people there used heavily to um, care for the land around them and achieve their own goals. Um, and I uh, bought the place that I live on now about two years ago, and it's largely oak woodland and meadow, which is something that um, needs fire in order to kind of remain a stable environment. Mm-hmm. So I started getting more and more interested in doing prescribed burning um, and had some friends who had those skills and started um, working with them to learn that from them. And they run a program in the Bay Area. So they do fires in the spring and the fall um, and things for prescribed burns. And part of that process can be getting certified to do wildland firefighting, which is a firefighter two training. Mm -hmm. And that makes it easier to do prescribed burns. It gives you a lot of... um, the skills and the training to kind of keep up with the fire and makes it easier for insurance stuff. So they did a big um, class for firefighter two training this spring that I took. What's firefighter two? got certified for. So firefighter two is wildland firefighting. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're ranked like crimes. So a <laughs> uh, firefighter type two is lower than a firefighter type one, which would be if you are a professional, like structural firefighter who knows how to use air tanks at, um, deal with kind of larger fires. Okay. So for firefighter type two training, you're doing a lot of like learning about fire behavior, learning how to work together as a group, learning about the command structure of fires as they're set up, um, and learning about like how to use the hand tools and hoses and the more basic stuff that goes into firefighting. Um, so I took that class in the spring. And then it was really clear all through the winter that this was going to be a really awful fire season. Mm -hmm. Um, So the person who runs that program started trying to network with um, different fire departments in her area to try and figure out whether we could be kind of an on-reserve firefighting crew. Um, And that's a model that is just starting to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So people who have the skills, are in their community, but don't necessarily want to be full-time firefighters, don't want to necessarily, you know, fly to other states to do firefighting, but are willing and able to do firefighting in their own communities. Um, So she started working on getting that going, and then the fires blew up in the Bay Area, and she found a fire department who was willing to take us on Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of sponsor us to be a part of that firefighting effort. Um, so we started actually being on the front lines firefighting rather than doing prescribed fires. It's actually, it's interesting that that reminds me so much of 
the way that irregular forces sometimes get worked into like professional armies in crisis situations, you know, like, um, like talking, for example, with, uh, some of the, you know, like the anarchist units in Roshava, for example, which are like part of a command structure, but also have their own organizational structure that they like have within it. And just like, and I, I know that that's not unique to there. It's just like interesting to see this sort of irregulars idea presenting itself to firefighting, but I guess it makes sense. Yeah. And I'm really excited about the potential in that model. Um, I think it's a little bit weird right now because um, firefighting departments and, um, you know, in California, they have Cal Fire, which is a big, like, statewide, very large organization that's very used to responding to this kind of incident. And a big part of that is, like, a really strict chain of command and this kind of modularity of different groups. So if they have, you know, uh, like, specific kind of crew they have different names for all of them um they know exactly like what that crew is able to do whereas once we start adding you know random firefighters who are usually tech workers in their normal <laughs> lives mm-hmm. a lot of that breaks down um so i think it's hard for them to wrap their mind around the idea that we can actually be useful mm-hmm. but that is all predicated on the idea that we do have professional firefighters who are, are able to defend our communities mm-hmm. and what we're seeing in this fire season is just that there are not enough firefighters to be able to respond so we have you know fires that are threatening houses and they're saying like look this thing is growing and i see that it's growing but we just don't have enough resources to fight it mm-hmm. um, so we're kind of getting to the point where they're not going to be able to say no to people who have experience and have skills but are maybe not like already integrated into their chain of command yeah well, i just i'm fascinated by the idea of how chaotic or less less hierarchical or like more irregular units plug into larger larger structures um i don't know i'm I'm not trying to like paint this as like the anarchist takeover of wilderness firefighting wildland <laughs> firefighting but it's a it's still a i don't know it's just interesting to me yeah absolutely um, as it is now, I'm really curious to see what happens in the future, but as it is now, I mean, we saw in the Bay Area and the Santa Cruz fire, there was a group in Bonnie Dune who stayed behind and fought to defend their properties. And they were under an evacuation order. They were told to leave multiple times and chose to stay. Mm-hmm. And that I'm not advocating that because that can make it a lot harder for, um, people who are fighting the fires to do their job because then they have to rescue these people rather than actually fighting the fire. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, a lot of people are going to make that choice regardless of whether it's a good idea. And sometimes they are able to save their properties and defend their communities. And sometimes it does work out. And I see all of us gaining skills um, as a way to be better able to make that judgment call about whether something is something that we can address as a community or whether we just need to get out and save our own lives. That makes sense. So what's involved with you? You left the fire that you were fighting to come up and try and prepare your own house and your own property. Um, what's involved in preparing your your property? I mean, it's it's kind of crazy to me to think that I'm talking to you, whereas 10 miles away from you, like, 
is an uncontrolled fire. Um. <laughs> it's been moving very slowly over the last couple of days. It's less of an urgent thing than it was a little bit ago. But yeah, it does feel weird. Um, a lot of the stuff that I'm doing is stuff that uh, I should have been doing a long time ago. Um, I only live here part-time right now. Um, so there's just things that I haven't gotten to, um, which is on me. Um, especially after the fires in Santa Rosa, people started talking a lot more about building houses that are more fire resistant. Mm -hmm. Um, so that can look like rather than having, um, you know, wood roofs, having metal roofs, Mm um, with asphalt shingles which is the normal roofing material being kind of in between those as being good um normal houses have a lot of vents that are up under the eaves that can end up sucking in embers when fires go by them so the houses will burn down from the inside out Mm -hmm. so using roofing construction that doesn't require vents or um, covering those vents with really fine screens or if possible before you evacuate covering them completely with plywood so that they won't suck in any embers um Using composite siding or stucco rather than wood siding um, can Dang, help. I was doing from like if there's. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was doing so good until you got to that part about the cabin that I live in. <laughs> I, I have a metal roof. Is it totally wood. <laughs> it, I have a metal roof, um, and I'm in an yeah. A-frame, so most of my house is roof. Um, yeah. But my front and back walls are wood layered on wood on wood. And I have vents, but yeah. they're accessible. Like, I need a ladder, but they're not, like, hidden under the eaves, you know? They're just uh, gable vents. Uh-huh. Um, so uh-huh. I, can, I can block them. Anyway, not that this is about me, because I'm far away from these fires, and it's literally raining. Okay, <laughs> please continue. Stucco. Yeah. It's good to think about, though. Um, decks are a big thing on the West Coast. A lot of houses have decks, and mm. they're built right up against the side of the house. So embers will blow under them. Um, start fires there and then that will spread to the rest of the house. So ideally, if you have a wood deck, it has flashing like metal sheeting Mm -hmm. in between the deck and the house so that fire can't spread from it. Um, And then also if there's any gaps under it at all, you have those blocked either with really fine wire or um, like wire screening or solid um, material of some kind so that if embers blow up against your deck, they don't go under the deck. Okay. Um, I think for my house, like the very, I've already put water screening and stuff around it. I think very long-term, honestly, I'm just going to take the decks off the house and do patio because there's such a huge fire risk. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of what I'm doing while I'm here is clearing um, anything burnable that's up against the side of the house. So I have like grass around a lot of the house um, that, you know, it's September in Southern Oregon. So it's extremely dead and dry. So making sure that that's cut really, really short. And then using my firefighting hand tool um, to go around and scrape down to, um, like say, bare mineral earth within a couple feet of the house. So there's just like taking away all the roots and all the bits of remaining grass so that there won't be anything to catch fire directly up against the side of the house. Um, Any trees that are close to the house, making sure that they're limbed up so that they don't do what's called laddering so that if... um, the grass and meadows and stuff that surround my house, if they burn out and the fire gets close to those trees and they have branches that are close to the grass and the mm-hmm. trees can catch the, the grass can catch the trees on fire and then the trees burn all the way up. So making sure that there's a big gap between um, the ground and then the lowest branches. Um, 
any branches that are close to the house, like cutting those off. So I have some funny looking trees right now because mm-hmm. I cut off some branches and made them a little unappealing looking, but mm-hmm. I wanted to cut them away from the house. It's a safety thing. Um, my house is just dead in the woods. It's just, there's a, yeah, there's a yeah. large tree three feet behind my head right now. Um, right. But, but I, I think need- you can do a lot just by like, even in Eastern forests, which mm-hmm. are pretty thick, just like raking up a lot of the dead material on the ground, all the leaves and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like this one was kind of a hard sell for me because I'm very much like, oh, we're rebuilding soil, you know, letting that mm-hmm. compost into delicious forest stuff that will, yeah, but it's really flammable. Um, so raking that away from your house, um, if possible, and away from the bases of trees, which might end up carrying fire up. Okay. And then any dead trees that are around um, your house or any trees that are leaning towards it, like being proactive about felling those trees away from your house before it's an emergency situation. Come. Um, a lot of structure defense feels kind of weird from a like forest hippie sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because like an ideally defended structure is just a really ugly concrete block in the middle of a gravel patch, you know, mm-hmm. like we all want to enjoy the places that we live. So it's kind of a balance between trying to make it as fire safe as possible, but also, you know, having plants around, which of course everybody loves. Well, that's been like such a, um, a thing about living, living where I live, uh, especially during the pandemic where I, you know, I spent most of the last six weeks, six months, um, just literally in this 12 by 12 cabin in the forest and yeah. just the surrounding yeah. area and not much, not much else. And I've had a really different change of how I understand place. And uh, I mean, obviously I've just kind of gone a little bit crazy and like thought a lot <laughs> about sort of esoteric stuff about what it means to be a, a creature in the woods and yet trying to have this space where I, I more and more appreciate the distinction between interior and exterior spaces and the like uh-huh. the sort of like small scale domination of nature that <laughs> that I think is part of being nature and part of being an animal is to like make your space safe. And I think that there's a difference between yeah, like concrete blocks on a gravel patch, which is functionally how you could describe cities, right? Um right. no offense to I mean there are their own organic things in, in their way. <laughs> Versus like, yeah, I do think about how, I mean, one of the reasons I've been, I've been cutting back the, the plants and stuff immediately around my house is partly just so that like animals don't live three feet away from my house and like claw up my foundation and keep me awake at night and make me think Mm -hmm. that like I'm in a Lovecraftian story. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, that's a total tangent. I've just been living, I've been... (laughs) I think about this stuff way too much and I've been trying to avoid saying too much of it publicly, but um, please continue. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I mean, similarly, I have rats that live under my house and I can hear them scratching at night and I know that the little gaps that they're getting into, embers could also get into. Mm-hmm. I think it's very related. Yeah. Um. So that's all the stuff that you can do in advance, though, all the like tree clearing and deck prepping um, How far in terms of, away like, from your house straight are you up emergency? Um, they say defensible space should be like 100 to 250 feet away. Okay. I was thinking a lot about fire when I was looking at places to live um, mm-hmm. because 
a lot of places in this area are completely surrounded by trees. Mm-hmm. And there's just not a lot you can do without clear cutting that forest. Mm-hmm. Um, so my house is mostly meadow around it, which um, burns really easily, but doesn't burn super hot. Mm-hmm. And if a blade of grass falls over, it's not a big deal. Whereas if a giant flaming tree falls over, that's kind of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been clearing back stuff like out to the road in front of my house. And then um, the meadow that's immediately adjacent to my house is trimmed really short um, and just kind of working my way out to get as much as I could, uh, focusing on the stuff that's really close to the house. So it's within 50 feet, just because I don't have time to do everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from the emergency side, like uh, I have some external water tanks. Mm-hmm. So I'm on a well, and if the power goes out, I lose my well because it has an electric pump in it. Mm-hmm. So trying to fill up that external tank, um, which I don't have a good well, so I've been doing over a couple days, um, trying to uh, set up hose lines around the house and kind of think about like where the fire might come from. Um, I have some buckets. What are hose lines of- around the house? What does that mean? So like making sure that assuming that I have power, I have hoses on all of the available spigots and they extend out from the house Mm, so that if the fire starting getting close, I could go around and turn on all the spigots and have them available to use if I needed to run over and use them real quick. It wouldn't be like hauling around piles of hose to try to figure out Mm -hmm. where would be the most strategic place. Um, Would you be spraying the house or would you be spraying the fire or would you be spraying the land around the like... How do, what does that look like? So I think that it's so hard to try to imagine what this might look like just because it could be any number of things. Mm-hmm. But I'm guessing what would happen is that the fire would come down the mountain and it would probably be pretty windy because it's often very windy near the front of forest fires mm-hmm. and there would be embers falling. So ideally, I would have a sprinkler going on the roof, which is what a lot of people do. I haven't set that up yet because our water pressure in my house is really bad, and I don't think that I could keep a sprinkler going up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd probably need to uh, spray it myself, which I don't know if being on top of the roof in a forest fire is really a great plan, <laughs> but we'll see. Um, and then going like all those embers landing will probably start little spot fires. Mm-hmm. So uh, trying to put those out if they're in a place that endangers structures or um, try to dig line in between wherever they are and wherever the structures are. Mm-hmm. Cause I think if, if it's to that point, like the embers are dropping all the meadows around the place are going to burn and that's fine. Mm-hmm. So I think that feeds into like stuff that I've learned from working around fire with prescribed burns is that fire is not necessarily bad. And that even if all those meadows burn, that's kind of a safety zone that, might actually protect my house from the main fire if it gets here because all that will have burned. So the fire when it's really, really strong and coming raging off the mountain might go around rather than just like through the meadow and right up to my house. Okay. Um, And that's something that forest fire, like actual firefighters and people doing prescribed burns will do is start what's called backfires. So they'll dig a little hand line um using tools or work off of a road what's a hand line and then they'll a hand line so um firefighters have what's called a hand tool and there's a bunch of different kinds but a lot of them look like um some kind of hoe basically Mm -hmm. 
So you scrape away the top layer of fallen leaves and grass and all the burnable stuff on top of the ground and get down to that bare mineral soil. Mm-hmm. So that you're creating a little gap that fire um, would have to jump across rather than just burning straight through. Okay. So you're creating like a, a tiny little fire break. And that by itself is usually not enough to hold a fire that's more than a couple inches tall. But you can light a fire there that will only be a couple inches tall and then it will burn back from that line. And all that hmm. space that you've burned is now the black. So that's stuff that won't burn again. So you're creating a much wider fire break mm-hmm. by burning off of this little fire break that you made. Okay. And that's obviously something that's really dangerous to do because you're starting a fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, like I was talking about it with my housemate this morning, like that's not something that I really feel qualified to do in a non-emergency situation. So the listeners should not assume that that's just... what they're going to do. No, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Cause I might just burn my own house down. <laughs> okay. Like that would, that would be awful. And I'd feel really bad. Or I might burn a neighbor's house down, you know, like you're mm-hmm. anytime you're starting a fire, there's a lot of risk that goes along with that. Um, I forgot how I even got started on backburning. I'm not going to do that on my property. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Uh, um, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. Those spot fires might create a lot of black around the house that might be okay. So mm-hmm. if, if I saw a fire that was burning, you know, 100 feet out in the meadow and it was small, I don't know that I would just go try to put it out. Okay. Um, I would focus on the stuff that's closer to the house. Okay. Or like inside that kind of zone that I've created around the house. Yeah. So a lot of it is just like having water around, having tools around, and then trying to emotionally think through like what, at what point do I evacuate? Mm -hmm. Because if it's at the point where I'm having to defend my property, for sure, there's already an evacuation Mm -hmm. order in place. Yeah. Um, And whether I personally am willing to stay, I think generally staying is a bad idea. Like people should uh, get them and their animals and whatever valuables they have out mm-hmm. rather than trying to stay. That makes sense. And that that's something that I'm hoping that in future episodes, I'm going to talk more about to go bags and mm-hmm. keeping your car packed and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is interesting. Pretty much, go ahead. Oh, pretty much everyone that I know in this area has like their truck packed mm-hmm. and facing out in their driveway and a full tank of gas. Mm-hmm. And they're like thinking about their exit routes. Like I have a group of friends who live on a mountain road where they don't have cell phone service. Um, and they're not even staying at home right now because they are worried about getting trapped there in case there's a fire. So yeah, yeah people are thinking strategically and thinking about um, worst case scenarios, which feels scary, but is absolutely the right thing to be doing. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I try and talk about on this show because one of the whole points of prepping is to be able to stay calmer during crisis situations and also even sort of be calmer when you anticipate crisis situations because you're yeah. doing everything that you can. And then at some point, once you've done everything you can, then it's luck and you know everything else um, or the people yeah. around you having done everything they can. But okay, so I feel like that kind of covers prepping your home right? There's certain things Mm -hmm. that you can do structurally. 
and there's certain decisions you can make about when you place your home and then there's certain things like would you and and i'm only thinking of this just from my own house point of view right you said the two of the things that you worry about one is that if your power goes out you lose your well pump and then also that your water your house is fairly low water pressure is that something that yeah. you can like hook up a generator as an emergency backup to keep your well going and also is it something that you can like add water pumps like you know can you add additional water pumps to like up your pressure or anything like that yeah so you can definitely run water pumps off of a generator my the water pump on my well is not set up to be run off a generator but i have an external water pump that mm-hmm. is on my list of things to do to um do a run through of testing that and making sure that it actually works off of the generator mm-hmm. um my house has really low water pressure because I have a really crappy well and it uh, will not support um, really good water pressure. Mm-hmm. And I thought that I was going to get a new well dug this year, but it's $20,000 <laughs> and there's kind of a recession. And yeah, there's there are definitely things that you can do. Some of them are expensive. Yeah. I think that it's worth doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, would you, if you evacuate, would you just like turn on all your hoses and then leave or no? Yeah. I think that if I evacuated, I would probably set up that sprinkler on the roof. Mm -hmm. Um, even if it was really shitty, low water pressure, um, and hope that it helped a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I have sprinklers in the front yard that I would turn on, but yeah, they'd only work as long as the power was on. So mm-hmm. if the fire was close enough that it was actually threatening my house, the power would probably be out. So it would kind of be like a can't hurt sure. thing to do rather than an actual hope that it would work out. It's like a plus one to your armor class, not invincibility. Yeah, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm we're really lucky here in that the fire is probably going to approach from um, the south or the west and our escape routes are to the north mm-hmm. um, and our power comes from the north. So we have good escape routes compared to many people in this area. Um, so I would feel more comfortable like pushing that line a little bit. Um, but I think that there are a lot of people who, should probably evacuate like as soon as there's any hint of wildfire just so they don't get trapped. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something actually that we'd learned a lot about in firefighter training was like thinking about where your safe zones are. So where you'd be able to go in order to ride out a fire. And I have a neighbor whose property directly joins mine who has a giant cow pasture that's grazed down to like an inch and is pretty green right now. Mm-hmm. So I know that like if I woke up, and the road was closed and there was fire really close. And for whatever reason, I didn't get the notice to evacuate. That's my plan for where I would go. And I have already thought about that in advance. Like, okay, there's a spot that would probably not burn super high intensity that I might actually be able to survive in, even if everything around here burns. Okay. One of the things that I was looking at during the uh, Australian fires, their summer, our winter, was... I was looking at fire shelters, um, the, yeah. you know, because the area that I live, um, again, I'm not, I feel terrible being like, let me think about me because like half the people <laughs> I know are, you know, choking on smoke right now. Um, but, 
you know, I, I live in an area that is not supposed to burn much, but I, there have been increased fires in the, you know, because the world is ending because capitalism destroyed it. But, um, and so I was looking into some of these fire shelters that are, I think are a little bit more popular in Australia. I don't know if people are using them out West and everything I, I found about them was kind of like, yes, you can build for a decent amount of expense and effort, like different types of fire shelters. And no, none of them are better than evacuation. All of them are like only worst case scenario type things because like, yeah, it's kind of a crawl into a hole in the ground and you probably won't die. I don't know. I, right. I was wondering if you have thoughts or have seen people making use of them or anything like that. I'm so glad I'm not the only person researching these. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I have been reading a lot on the internet about fire shelters. Um, and I got curious about them after, um, I think it was last fire season in California, there were news articles about a bunch of people who had survived the forest fires hiding in their wine caves mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, people in yeah, Northern totally. California have wine caves. Mm -hmm. um, That's definitely a word I've heard of before. <laughs> yeah. So they're like artificially constructed caves mm -hmm. with presumably really strong doors mm -hmm. and people were able to survive in there. Um, and yeah, I'm really interested in that. Just like, of course, evacuation is a better plan. Mm -hmm. But we've seen again and again people not getting enough notice. Um, resources are getting stretched thinner, so there aren't people actively um, monitoring all the edges of the fires that are burning right now. So it's really hard to say whether people might get surprised or not. Mm -hmm. And people who live rurally don't always have good escape routes. So like having some kind of backup seems like a really good idea. Mm -hmm. Um the I've been reading about ones in Australia and there are a lot of people there kind of DIYing them. So mm -hmm. like digging a hole, building a wood structure over it, um, layering down like heat reflective materials for that radiant heat mm -hmm. and then putting like several feet of dirt over the top of that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just making an insulated hole in the ground and hoping that that will work. And I'm not really sure why that's more popular in Australia than it seems to be in the U.S. I think it might be because the the way that fires burn there is different. They tend to, from what very little I know, they tend to like sweep through an area pretty fast in a way that's really hard to escape from. Uh, that um, makes sense. Whereas on the West Coast, like we're dealing with a lot of fires in mountain ranges that kind of move in weirder ways and get slow sometimes and fast sometimes. So I think that there's like more opportunity to escape. Mm -hmm. I think that that's why there's a difference there. I don't know. Just kind of talking out of my ass on that one. Um, well, I, I buy but, it. So yeah, that yeah. is the official position of this show. Great. <laughs> but I do wonder whether those are going to be more popular as time goes on just because, yeah, the fires are getting out of hand. Yeah. And some of the ways that you could build them, I think would probably double as nuclear fallout shelters. So uh, which well, nuclear fallout shelters, you need them to last for a really long time. No, no, they actually only need to be like 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that for most threats. Um, oh, huh. It's kind of interesting, uh, the like, uh, but I, I need to actually do this research again properly. I did all this research on, <laughs> on DIY shelters um, about six months or nine months ago, and I don't remember all of it. 
Um, but a lot of different nuclear threat models are more about avoiding a certain level of radiation kind of like for the first day or two. But I don't know. Um, that makes sense. Okay, so most people don't have fire shelters, but it's like maybe the way <laughs> that the world is going, they're more and more worth looking into. Um, is it okay to pivot into what, how a wilderness firefighter, a wild, what's the proper phrase? Wildland firefighter, is that it? Yeah, wildland firefighter. Okay. How a wildland firefighter is trained to survive a worst case scenario in terms of like, you're trapped and there's a fire. I, I've read something about this and I have like thoughts about it, but I literally don't remember if what I read was fiction or nonfiction. So yeah, fair. <laughs> um, this is a good spot for me to caveat. Like I did the training. I have mm -hmm. the certificate. I have like nine days of experience. <laughs> okay. Um, but part of what they train you on is how to not get into that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had us watch videos of, um, like people who you can hear their radio communication. You can see from a helicopter, like what's going on with the wildland firefighters on the ground. And mm -hmm. you can hear everybody communicating, like trying to lead them to a safe place as a fire is encroaching and they got, you know, kind of caught out. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a lot to learn from, I think the way that firefighters address things in emergency situations mm -hmm. um they have us memorize a lot of acronyms and also they have like a little pocket guide called an irpg i think it's an incident response pocket guide mm -hmm. um that has a lot of little checklists in it to get at what you're talking about where when you're in an emergency situation sometimes it's hard to remember all the steps that you could be taking to keep yourself safe mm -hmm. um so a lot of it is trying to always be in radio contact with somebody who has more information than you do about what the fire is doing mm -hmm. because on the ground, you know, maybe it's smoky, maybe you're in a Valley. It's hard to tell what's going on. Um, in this scenario, people are like trying to be close to the fire kind of as a safety thing. Cause if you're close to it, you know what it's doing. Um, I think if you are just like a person in the world trying to get as far away from the fire as possible is a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as a firefighter, making sure that you are downhill from a fire because fire moves uphill. Mm -hmm. um, making sure that if you are downhill from a fire, you're watching for anything rolling down from it. Any like burning logs and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, always having uh, lookouts and having an escape route that is maintained and that someone has an eye on it. Yeah, so, Like a protest. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a lot of stuff is really similar. Um, they Cops also as train wildfire. us in, yeah. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny though, because there is like when you get kettled by cops, like mm -hmm. if you gang up together, you can actually just bust through to the other side. Mm -hmm. And there is a similar thing that they teach you with firefighting. Like the fire line is scary, mm -hmm. <laughs> but a lot of times on the other side of that, there's black ground. Whoa, so, so running like, through the part fire. Of the, yeah, like being wow. in the already burned ground is the safest place that you can be. So mm -hmm. if you're getting surprised by a fire in grass or something that's burning fast but not uh, doesn't have a lot of heat in it, you might be able to just get through to the other side rather than trying to 
run away from it and getting exhausted and you know breathing in all that smoke and yeah potentially being like in actual fire for much longer because you didn't bust through the other side that's um, wild yeah all firefighters also carry around a fire shelter mm-hmm. um which people jokingly call shake and bakes too mm-hmm. because it's, it's just like a giant tinfoil bag <laughs> um and it's kind of like a mummy sleeping bag it has like a little pocket for your feet and a pocket for your arms Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to like uh, scope around for the clearest place that you can find mm-hmm. and then use your hand tool to dig out as much bare ground as you have time to dig out mm-hmm. and then dig a little hole for your face so that you can stick your face in what is hopefully like cooler air mm-hmm. and then like unfold, like whip out your fire shelter, hang on to it really well because it's probably going to be windy if you're next to a fire that you're trying to escape from. Mm-hmm put your feet in and then like flop over and put your arms above your head. Um, and then like a lot of times fire wildland firefighters will have like fusees, which are kind of like long running road flares or like things to light fires in case they need to light back burn. So making sure that you don't bring any of that stuff into your fire shelter. Um, but you oh, do bring man. in some water and your radio and stuff. Because it has a lower um, ignition temperature than like you as a person do. Yeah. So you might, <sighs> yeah, burn it. And the statistics for like survival rates in fire shelters and actual fires are not great. It's very much like a last case mm-hmm. scenario. Like 50-50 or like, like 10% or? I do not know any okay. actual numbers. Okay. It's very, very rare for people to deploy fire shelters. So like mm-hmm. uh, when I was on the fire that I was working on um, in Big Sur, they, there were a group of firefighters who were trying to defend um, Nascimento Fire Station mm-hmm. and ended up having to deploy shelters. Mm-hmm. And like everybody was talking about it. We didn't hear pretty much any news from the outside world, but all of us knew that, oh yeah, 15 firefighters had deployed their fire shelters. Um, two of them had needed medical uh, help afterwards and one of them was in critical condition. You know, like we all knew that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they, from everything that I've heard, it can get really hot in there. It can get like 500 degrees and you could still survive. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people end up with really gnarly burns. Um, God. But it's, you might be able to pull through whereas you wouldn't if you were in a fire, just like bear. Yeah. Okay. Do you keep one like around your house now or no? No, they're like $600. <laughs> oh, brutal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, they don't let you keep yours. No. I mean, if I were doing it full time, mm-hmm. I think even then, like people who work, so people who work as wildland firefighters, a lot of times they don't work for the government. They work for um, private agencies that are contract groups that the government then hires for fires. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you're using like company supplied equipment. I don't know other people generally have their own personal fire shelter um, that they like keep after their job. Okay. Um, so probably it's beyond the scope of this particular interview to actually talk about how to fight a wildfire beyond like basic survival, get out, protect a shelter, the kind of stuff we've already talked about. Um, yeah. But I guess, do you want to talk about how to gain those skills? Like, like it's it's kind of interesting to me. I feel like in a lot of ways the current and deepening crises have kind of really challenged us to like step up our 
skills. Just step up like, yeah. you know, I mean, one of the, I don't know whether it's going to come out before or after this one, but yesterday I did an interview with someone who has responded to a gunshot wound at a demonstration. And, you know, right. I hate thinking about medical stuff, but here I am learning how to handle gunshot wounds. And so like, is this something that, you know, especially people in fire prone areas, like, might want to think about like like even like you said that you you came to this because you were well just basically like starting to have to think about wildfires a lot more actively um how, how does one go about learning how to fight wild uh, wildland fires yeah um you're totally right that that is beyond the scope of anything that i would be able to tell people about uh being a pretty newbie to this um I am really excited about the idea of prescribed burning. I think that it's a great way to gain skills with fire, um, to get some of that kind of experience that can't be taught, that you just get by being around fire and seeing how it works. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's also a really huge wildfire preventative for places, especially on the West Coast, but more and more probably over the whole U.S. Um, so I'd encourage people to look for groups that are doing that in their area and try to learn about that. There's um, this program called TREX, which is a, I think it's Training Resource Exchange, T-R-E-X, that teaches people um, how to do prescribed burning. So this is coming full um, circle. And it happens. Sorry. This is coming full circle back to Antifa starting fires. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yeah go start some fires see how they uh see how they go but in a controlled way <laughs> or in a prescribed plan for way yeah anyway um sorry please continue beyond that yeah like beyond doing prescribed burns which i think are great um the classes that i took in order to get firefighter certified um most of them were online and free so there's this website called the national wildlife coordinating group which is nwcg.gov and they have training courses, uh, including tons of firefighter training courses. Um, so you can look at the ones that are specific to FFT2, which is the firefighter um, to training. Um, and they have classes on like fire behavior and, you know, how to work within the firefighting um, kind of community, mm -hmm. like chain of command stuff. Um, and I think all of those classes are great to learn about um, things that might be relevant. And they cover everything from like different kinds of nozzles to um, fire behavior to how to communicate on a fire line with the people that you're on a crew with. Like they, they cover a lot of things that are useful. Okay. They're not aimed at like homeowners or people who are kind of working to defend their property, but mm -hmm. a lot of um, different groups put out information about how to create defensible space around your house, including Cal Fire has um, good information on their website about the kind of things that you can be looking for. Well, I feel like we, I, I try to promote sort of uh, community prepping at least as much as any kind of individual prepping yeah. with this show. And like, it seems like learning how to fight, like learning how to stop wildfires is the way to keep your home safe in some ways like being part of a community that knows how to respond and like do large projects seems like a big part of it um, yeah there are absolutely things that i learned doing the firefighter training that i'm now applying to oh i know fire does this mm -hmm. i can see that this situation on my property might create 
that kind of environment, I'm going to fix that. One of the things I want to ask a little bit about um, Mm -hmm. is that uh, a year ago, when I would talk to anarchists doing disaster mutual aid, you know, relief work, one of the things that people kind of talk about a lot is how much political lines disappear and how, you know, a friend of mine tells me a story about who's terrified of flying, getting into a small plane owned by a right-wing libertarian to fly supplies into a hurricane, you know? Mm-hmm. And because the people who are crazy enough to fly their small planes into hurricanes are right-wing libertarians and the people crazy enough to organize to get all the supplies to put them on the airplane and then fly in are left-wing libertarians, you know, are, are anarchists. And, and um, I think one of the things that kind of scares me about the current political landscape and kind of shocks me about it is that because of how deeply divided the U.S. is right now, it seems my, my, my feeling is that a lot of that sort of intrinsic solidarity is being stripped away um, because yeah. people are being told that anti-fascists are the enemy and that you know, trans people are the enemy and you know, POC are the enemy and things like that. Um, I'm curious what your experience being an irregular within the firefighting world has been in terms of whether any like sort of cross-cultural solidarity, cross-political solidarity is still intact or how it is. Yeah. Um, so part of the training that they have us do, like a shockingly large amount of the training that they have us do mm-hmm. for firefighting certification was on getting along with people. And they talk a lot about having respect for people who have different lifestyles than you and how important it is to work together with people and treat everybody with professionalism and with respect, regardless of any of the characteristics that you might, you know, find different than your own. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think within the firefighting community, like there's definitely a lot of emphasis on like, we're all here to do this thing together. And mm-hmm. what you do outside of this thing we're doing together is your own business. Okay. Um, and, and part of the reason that I'm so excited to start doing this work um, is because I, I am trans and I live in a rural community and have radical politics and all of that stuff with the way the world right is right now kind of feels like I'm putting a target on my back. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited about the idea of getting to work with um neighbors across the spectrum of people who live in rural Oregon mm-hmm. and kind of build relationships with people by doing hard work together and by you know like kind of emphasizing that this is a community and we're in this together and hoping that I can build ties with people and then you know they won't <laughs> flip out mm-hmm. when <laughs> other things happen in the world yeah um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity to do that, to come together as a community in the face of crisis. And then now all of a sudden, rather than just being that random radical outsider, you're someone that people have worked with and someone that people have built trust with mm-hmm. in other environments. That makes so much sense to me. And it's like one of the most optimistic things I've thought about in weeks. I Yeah. <laughs> I genuinely believe that the only chance we have not only just like as anarchists, but like maybe as a species at this point is like 
And when I say like coming together across the table, I don't mean like centrist, you know, like like we should all become like political moderates or something, but just literally like learning to build community and learning to finding ways to be seen as human by people who are trying to dehumanize us. Um, I don't know. It seems like the only way that we have a chance. I mean, so I don't yeah. know that. Um, to me, that seems like a, a good hopeful note to end on unless you have, if you have any additional things that you want to tell people who might be listening about fire or any other work that you've been doing. Uh, no, I feel like that's, that's a good, good note to end on. Yeah. Thank you for um, having this podcast. I've really been enjoying the emphasis in particular that you're putting on like community preparedness rather than, you know, having your little bunker or fire shelter <laughs> or whatever in your backyard. Um, yeah. It's really good to hear other people talking about it from that perspective. Thanks. Yeah. One of the things I, you know, I, I always wondered about that tension when I was first starting this podcast. I was like, oh, I'm doing all this individual prep work, you know, and I have my, you know, I had a stash of N95 masks that I've had for about two years, literally just in case of like, I don't know, earthquakes and fallen structures and dust in the air. You know, I didn't think about <laughs> pandemic. And then, and then I was like, well, what am I going to do with three masks? How does that help keep my community safe instead of myself? And then what I realized is that like having my individual prepared stuff means that when it comes time to we all have to work together, it's not just about like, oh, now I give out all my masks. Although it was very nice that when my, my mother who caretakes for my elderly grandmother was like, crap, I literally cannot get a 95 mask anywhere. I was like, ah, I have one and I can mail it to you. Um, mm -hmm. But also like when it comes time to to like be one less person who needs rescue, you mm -hmm. know, like to have your shit together in order to be less of a, like less of a burden on the, the broader community. And I don't want to paint people as burdens. I think that people who need rescue, which is certainly include everyone who's prepared. I mean, like, sorry, I'm almost in ranting about this, but like one of the things that's been wild to think about with the preparedness thing is, is um, preppers of all types. Once all this crisis happened, you know, very quickly learned that we're not prepared <laughs> you know yeah um yeah and it's it's all a matter of you were talking at the beginning about how you were like well i should have been doing all this stuff two years ago to to prepare my house for fire and it's like you can have a preparedness mindset but not have everything nailed down perfectly you know and mm -hmm. unfortunately deepening crisis just sort of shows the the weaknesses in our in our preparedness but, yeah, absolutely. So as soon as we hit stop on the recording, we remembered that, or Kai remembered that there was something else we were planning on talking about, about how capitalism and colonization and things like that are affecting this crisis. So uh, I hit record again, and here we are. Affecting slash causing. Mm -hmm. Because on the West Coast, I mean, indigenous people here used to burn probably hundreds of thousands of acres every year. Um, purposefully as a way of, um, yeah, tending for the land. Um, and then, uh, you know, genocide happened. Um, colonizers wiped out the Native people. We entered this era of fire suppression. There were, like, cattle folks who would still do burns. But, um, you know, in the last hundred years, that just became perceived as more and more dangerous and became harder and harder to do. And now we're in this situation where there's a ton of fuel buildup. We're having these really dry years. 
climate change is causing everything to be drier and less regular. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're having this fire crisis. And I think the only real answer to it is to burn things more, um, not to burn things less, which is me getting back on my prescribed burn mm-hmm. rant. But the people who have the most knowledge about how that affects the landscape that we all live in now are the indigenous people mm-hmm. who are still carrying on that tradition and still um, like slowly being allowed to do that work again and slowly like taking on that work again. Um, and that's definitely happening in California. Um, and I'm really excited to see that work continue and to see um, awareness of that work spread. How does that tie into so, capitalism specifically? I know that, I mean, obviously I can see how it ties yeah. into colonization. Yeah. So with capitalism, I mean, we see it a lot in Oregon where um, a lot of the forests around here are being actively logged um, mm-hmm. and often clear cut. So they're working on a timber harvest plan in my area now where they explicitly said like the logging that we're going to do is going to increase fire danger in this area for the next 10 to 15 years. Cause they come in and they cut out a lot of the older, larger trees that are pretty fire resistant Mm -hmm. and then they generate these huge slash piles of all the stuff that you know all the branches and um, smaller trees that they can't use for lumber and they just leave them there and then burn them in the winter maybe but there's just like piles of fuel basically they leave everywhere and then it creates these openings in the forest and then all these little um, plants grow up and now you have all this scrubby brush that's really easy to light on fire and burns really well and that's because the timber industry is so strong here um and work that people do to try to act against that is falls back into this like class divide of well there are people who have been in this area for generations who survive as loggers who survive as mill workers and it's perceived as an attack on their jobs Mm -hmm. rather than as like an effort to improve community resiliency both in the like community like communities of organisms in the forest sense and in the human community sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even private property plays into that. Like it's very difficult to imagine doing live scale burning when we have this patchwork of federal organizations, uh-huh. of state organizations. There's all the different kinds of protected like government owned lands and all of them have different ways of doing forest management and doing burning if they do any at all intermixed with all these private landowners many of whom have houses on their land or who have you know other plans for those woods and because we don't have communal ownership we can't make communal decisions about what we do with those lands and how those lands are maintained um and i mean that's like a really basic part of our culture right this idea of private property mm-hmm. but it's the one that is making this whole crisis worse now that that makes sense. One of the things that I, um, you know, I, I, I don't spend as much of my time thinking about disaster capitalism, partly because sometimes problems are so bad that my brain kind of um, has disaster fatigue and kind yeah. of, I, I have this like fog. It's the same reason I couldn't confront mountaintop removal, coal mining for a long time. After years of doing forest defense to prevent old growth logging, it would be natural to go fight against mountaintop removal but people leveling mountains was just literally too much problem and disaster capitalism is almost like it's so evil by disaster capitalism i mean roughly like basically people leveraging disaster to increase their own capital like basically like um watching the world burn and counting their money you know 
And yeah. my first exposure to that, I think, one of my first exposures to that was actually in Southern Oregon as relates to fire. I was part of a, a small group of people trying to defend a uh, an area that had burned, but the old growth trees were still intact because they right. were old growth trees. But because of right. a bill that Clinton signed, the salvage rider, um, anything that has burned, I don't know if this is still in place. I don't have any reason to believe anyone would have gotten rid of this bill. Um, anything that has been burned is free game to log on, like not free game, like anyone can do it. But even protected areas are no longer protected once they've burned. And so I would hang out in this burned forest in Southern Oregon and see how the forest was coming alive through this fire. You know, I could see, mm -hmm. you know, um, is it the bristlecone pine where like, I think, I don't remember, it's been about 15 years, but, you know, there's a pine cone that doesn't even open until fire opens it. And so new seeds can grow. And yeah, a lot of plants on the West Coast are like that. They're fire dependent or, you know, related to fire. They, they rely on that yeah. as part of their life cycle. And that was the first time I saw the way that, um, you know, capitalism would come in and, and destroy everything. Um, <laughs> okay, well, that's a less cheery note to end on, but a, a still worthwhile <laughs> one. Is there any, uh, anything else you want to say on that matter? Um, yeah, one other thing that is also mm -hmm. capitalism related is um, talking to people who do like land management mm -hmm. and um, even firefighting. Like a lot of the, there are a lot of things that we would like to be doing, but that we can't do because they're too expensive. Mm -hmm. And they're not just expensive from a monetary standpoint, but also from a like people hours standpoint. Mm -hmm. They're just like difficult and really manual. And I think that that is very much like ties back into capitalism. Like there's a hundred thousand things that I would love to be doing um, that I can't do because I work a full-time job in order to, you know, support myself mm -hmm. um, that doesn't. And the work that I do does not feel directly tied to my community in the way that I would like it to. Um, and I think that because we are always forced to be making those trade-offs, it's a lot harder to do the things that we'd like to be able to do to support our communities. Um, and some of that could look like forest thinning or doing prescribed burns or, you know, restoring rivers for salmon habitat or, you know, seeding native plants, like whatever. There's, there's mm -hmm. tons of things that we could be doing that would help a lot right now that we just don't have the resources to do because we're all stuck in this rat race, like making widgets or building apps or whatever it is that we do. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I've been thinking about is about how, like... Well, it's just depressing to realize that there's so much we could do to mitigate the disaster that we're in. You know, like there's Absolutely. so many people in this world who are so intelligent, who have so much physical capacity to do things. And even like, even as activists, you know, the fact that we had to like stop fighting climate change so that we could stop the fascist takeover of the United States <laughs> is very frustrating because like, Obviously, like like all of this shit would be happening under Biden, you know, like yeah. maybe not the militias stopping the mutual aid groups, um, like that's a Nazi problem, right? And yeah, but it's like 
we shouldn't have to fight Nazis. We have another fucking thing we have to deal with that's bigger than any of that. And that's not to say that fighting Nazis isn't essential and to stop fascist takeover isn't, it, it is completely essential. But it's so frustrating that we had to do this other thing because there's so much work we have to get done. Ugh. I think that's why I had such a like immediate rage reaction to hearing that people were blaming the forest fires on anti-fascists mm-hmm. because like, dude, I'm busy. I do <laughs> not have time to deal with this kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You're like literally busy stopping fire. <laughs> like, Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then like, you know, taking time away from, I have a feeling that it is better paid work to um, be a techie than to, fight fire um you know just a little <laughs> yeah um well i hope your house doesn't burn down and i hope you survive the coming weeks <laughs> thank you <laughs> um i hope we all do and uh thanks so much for for being on the show and and telling us what you've learned if you enjoyed this show please go ahead and tell your friends and listen um what's the word you do the thing where you click on the thing that everyone tells you to do it becomes like second nature to hear podcasters tell you to do the thing uh subscribe and subscribing does an incredible amount of good it's incredibly important uh it just it algorithms rule the world and it is a terrible horrible shame but you can help our algorithms rule the world and that doesn't sound as good when i put it that way please subscribe to the show it's the main way to find out when new episodes go up if you'd like to support the show more directly you can support me on patreon my patreon is patreon.com slash margaret killjoy and i put up all kinds of new content usually monthly and also i would in particular like to thank chris and nora and hoss the dog and kirk and willow natalie sam christopher shane the compound and m for making this show possible. All right, that's it for me for now, and I'll talk to you soon.